Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the Saputo Inc. Fiscal 2021 First Quarter Results. During the presentation, our participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we'll conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, just press the 1 by the 4 on your telephone. If any time of the conference you need to reach an operator, you can press the star for by the 0. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded Thursday, August 6, 2020. Now, I would like to turn the conference over to Lino Saputo, Jr., Let's go right ahead. Thank you very much, Tommy. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Taking part in our call today are Lino Saputo, Jr., Maxine Thierrien, and Kai Bachman. Before answering questions from our analysts, Lino will begin by providing an overview of our fiscal 2021 first quarter results. Before we begin, I will remind you this call is being recorded and will be posted on our website. Please also be reminded that some of the statements provided during this call are forward-looking. Such statements are based on assumptions that are subject to risks and uncertainties. We refer to our cautionary statements regarding forward-looking information in our annual report, press releases, and filings. Please treat any forward-looking information with caution as our actual results could differ materially. We do not accept any obligation to update this information except as required under securities legislation. I'll now hand the call over to Lino. Thank you, Sandy, and good afternoon to you all. I hope everyone is keeping safe. Our thoughts are with those affected by the pandemic. Our fiscal 2021 first quarter results were released this morning, and I am delighted with our performance. However, there's simply no getting around it. COVID-19 has impacted our business. Compared to the corresponding quarter last fiscal year, consolidated revenues decreased 7.6%. Net earnings, however, were up 16.6%, while adjusted net earnings were down by 2.4%, and our adjusted EBITDA increased by 2.4%. The quarter began during one of the lowest points of the pandemic, which directly impacted global economic conditions, supply chains, and business productivity. As things progressed, we saw economic indicators start to improve as governments began easing restrictions. As such, we've continued to experience fluctuating shifts in consumer demand, impacting all our sectors to varying degrees. During the quarter, we witnessed strong volatility. Sales volumes in the food service and industrial market segments remained at low levels, while retail market sales volumes increased. More specifically, the Canada sector benefited from higher sales volumes, mainly in the fluid milk category. In the U.S. sector, lower sales volumes dampened efficiencies and the absorption of fixed costs. On the positive side, U.S. market factors and the fluctuation of U.S. and Canadian currencies helped to offset this decrease. We're happy to announce today that our two U.S. divisions have merged into a combined and more agile dairy division USA. 
This milestone marks an important step towards procuring further synergies in all aspects of our U.S. business. This will allow the two divisions to benefit from a streamlined organizational structure and a solid, solid leadership team with Carl Kalitsa at the helm of operations. We firmly believe this will make the entire platform stronger, allowing our employees to work collectively and to serve our markets even better. In the international sector, increased milk availability in Australia lifted our results, as did contributions from the Lion Dairy and Drink Specialty Cheese Business acquisition. In our Europe sector, we experienced a surge in the retail segment as our sales volumes increased, mainly as a result of the pandemic. Building on the success of its well-loved Cathedral City brand, we recently introduced our fellow Canadians to Britain's most favored cheddar by importing it across the pond. During the quarter, despite the many challenges of the pandemic, we did not waver in our corporate responsibility commitments. We continue to do the right thing with a long-term perspective on the future of our business. Our priorities remained intact. We focused on progressing in each of our seven pillars. When it comes to our business ethics, we reinforced our stance to combat racism. As this important topic sparked conversations around the globe, we were proud to be one of the companies who signed the Business Council of Canada's statement denouncing racism. We strongly believe we all share in the responsibility to eliminate racism in all its forms. Standing firmly behind this, we recently confirmed we will retire the Coon Cheese brand name from our Australian portfolio. We are now working to develop a new name that will honor the brand affinity felt by our valued consumers while aligning with current attitudes and perspectives. We also celebrated the fifth anniversary of our animal welfare policy in June. Therefore, we took the opportunity to enhance it, to broaden its scope, and to reinforce our vow to bring stakeholders together to make positive contributions on this topic. We also advanced in our environmental pledge to make sustainable progress regarding our climate, water, and waste performance. Various projects aimed at reducing our annual energy consumption, CO2 emissions, and water usage globally have now been identified. In terms of our community pillar, from the onset of COVID-19, we've committed to helping the communities where we operate, focusing on food security for the most vulnerable through donations to local food banks. With numerous initiatives undertaken globally, product and financial donations amounted to over $5 million to date. This action complements our assurance to our people. No layoffs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic until further notice. In these unprecedented times, we are writing a pivotal chapter in our history. It is one filled with challenges and uncertainty, but also one which is open to possibilities and opportunities. Until this pandemic is behind us, we remain focused on managing through its effects. And we will keep safeguarding the health and safety of our employees while adapting to consumer demand. Our results reflect our strength 
and resilience as an organization. And we have our employees to thank once again for our continued success. Their camaraderie and their commitment to our business reinforce the vitality of our culture every single day. And for this, I am so proud of our remarkable team. On that note, I thank you for joining our call, and we will now proceed to answer your questions. Tommy? Thank you very much. And if you'd like to register a question, just press the 1, followed by the 4 on your telephone. You will hear three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered, I'd like to draw your registration is the 1, followed by the 3. One moment, please, for our first question. And we'll get to our first question on the line from Peter Sklar with BMO. Go right ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, you're seeing, uh, you know, a problematic area for Saputo has been the fluid milk business in Canada for quite a period of time now, but you're calling it out as a bright spot. Is that just demand in the retail channel as people are staying home and consuming more fluid milk at home, or is there another dynamic at play? So, uh, Peter, if you uh, listen to the uh, uh, comments that Max made uh, at the AGM, uh, we're talking about growing in our uh, profitable categories. Uh, we did, in the past, walk away from some business uh, because the prices that were being offered in the market, uh, we felt were unrealistic and not sustainable. Uh, to find that our competitors were not able to service those markets effectively, uh, and some of that volume came back. They came back under better terms and better conditions. Uh, and so for us, fluid milk uh, has been a, um, a, a bright spot in this last uh, quarter, uh, specifically because we got back some volume that we had once lost, uh, but also because we got it back at uh, better pricing, and also it became a comfort food for consumers as the uh, pandemic uh, started to take shape. Uh, so for all those counts, uh, fluid milk in this quarter has been uh, a benefit uh, to, the, to the Canadian platform. And, Lino, has that changed your view long-term of how you feel about the category? I know at times you've been quite frustrated about the performance of the category. Has that changed your mind, or do you think this is just a temporary thing? Absolutely not. It is a temporary thing. Uh, there's a lot of uh, trends uh, and a lot of patterns that we're seeing through COVID that, quite frankly, I don't think are going to be sustainable. So if you're asking, would we invest in uh, fluid assets uh, through acquisitions, uh, I will tell you the answer is no. Our CapEx allocation, however, for the uh, Port Coquitlam plant still continues uh, because we do have a solid business here in Canada, even though the market isn't growing. Uh, but beyond uh, the Port uh, investment, uh, we are not considering uh, further development in the fluid category. I think that this is uh, more of a blip than it is a trend. Okay. And the other positive development, or one of the other positive developments you called out was, you know, in Australia, what's been problematic to you has been the shrink in the, the milk supply, but you called out, called out that there was more milk availability. So is there more milk coming out of the farms, or are you capturing a bigger share of the milk uh, versus your competitors? So there's slightly more milk coming out of the farms. So I think that the, uh, uh, the erosion at the farm level has stopped. In fact, it's actually turned around. 
But uh, a, a very positive thing happened to us through COVID-19 as well in Australia is that some of our competitors were not able to process uh, their milk because uh, they were mostly food service or industrially oriented. Uh, we had the capacity, we had the ability to service customers domestically and internationally, and we gladly took on that milk. And I think that that has secured a lot of farmers uh, in Australia uh, that we are the right home for their milk. And so uh, a, a good portion of that milk, I think, is going to stick with us. Um, and so I'm, I'm still optimistic about our outlook uh, for the production capacity that we laid out through our three-year plan. We're not far from that number now. Uh, and I think that that is a very, very positive sign and a testament to the quality of the team we have in Australia that represents us every single day. Okay. And then just lastly, could you explain maybe in a little more depth why you decided to merge the U.S. divisions? You know, from, um, uh, you know, from a product standpoint, you know, one, you know, one is cheese and the other one, you know, are cream products, you know, things like cream and, you know, ice cream mix. And, you know, I kind of, it just seems to me those are two completely different channels. Could yeah. Go through yeah, the Peter, thinking. Yeah, Peter, it's not that different from uh, when we first acquired Dairyland back in 2001. Uh, we operated uh, the fluid milk separate from the cheese until such time that we got comfortable with both of those divisions uh, and thought that there were some great synergies to bring them together. Uh, the same thing could be said for the U.S., but I'm going to ask Kai to go into a bit more detail. I think we've got a great leadership uh, group out there, uh, and Kai's got some real great ideas and plans for that uh, division with Carl Kalisa, but I'm going to ask uh, Kai go into more detail with that, please. Sure. Thank you, Lino. So, you know, essentially what we need to do in the marketplace is we need to have one voice with our customers. We don't want to have our customers having to deal with multiple uh, sales representatives uh, to, uh, to get uh, the, the solutions that they're looking for for their business. So one voice with those key customers is critical. Uh, we, there are a lot of strengths within the SDF platform uh, in terms of the go-to-market strategy, their, uh, their insights work, uh, they're very strong. In fact, they don't have a lot of brands, so they're all about uh, providing solutions to, uh, to customers and consumers. SKUZA is very strong operationally, and uh, we feel that bringing the two divisions together will be able to leverage the strengths of each of the divisions to benefit an overall, the overall uh, newly created Saputo USA. And we also believe that there's going to be a lot of synergies that uh, we'll be able to uh, garner from the business, whether it's on the manufacturing side, raw material procurement, supply chain, and so on. And uh, if you look at uh, if you look at the makeup of the team, it's, it's a very experienced group. We're taking uh, the best of the two divisions to create a uh, senior leadership team for the One USA. Uh, combined uh, amongst the 10 members, you're looking at over two centuries of dairy experience and over, over 125 years of Saputo experience. So a very seasoned group, and uh, we're very confident that we're going to be able to take that business uh, to the next level, creating a bigger, better, stronger USA. And the gentleman who runs SDF, I believe his name is Paul, is he staying? Uh, Paul Corney has uh, retired, uh, and if you recall, uh, Carl Kalitza took over uh, that position uh, in a, uh, as an interim role. And I believe uh, uh, the last conference uh, that we had with the analyst, uh, um, somebody had asked the question if we're having trouble finding a leader for SDF. The reality is, is that uh, Carl, once he got involved in running the North American platform, 
had in the back of his mind, potentially unifying SDF and uh, SCUSA. Uh, and uh, he wanted to know more about the division uh, prior to pulling the trigger on that. Uh, Carl uh, has uh, understood that platform extremely well. He spent most of his time there. Uh, and uh, with Paul's retirement, we didn't think it was prudent to hire anyone, especially if those two uh, divisions will come together. Uh, but Terry Brockman still stays with the platform in a, uh, a different capacity, uh, but uh, still very valuable to the U.S. Uh, developing its uh, its network, its business, and its infrastructure. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. We'll get to our next question on the line. It's from Irene Natal from RBC Capital Markets. Please go right ahead. Thanks and good afternoon. Um, just uh, uh, following up on the U.S., please, if you don't mind. Um, so would you be willing to quantify for us what types of synergies or benefits you expect to get in the U.S. or how many positions might be eliminated or anything you could say on that subject? Uh, this is Kai. Uh, we're going to have the leadership group is going to be tasked with identifying opportunities. Again, we're trying to leverage the strengths strength of each of the divisions. But uh, what we're looking to do is create enablers to fuel future investment. So this isn't a cost-cutting exercise. This isn't, this isn't a business that's in trouble. Uh, it's a business that's performed quite well for us, uh, especially SDF. So we're looking to continue to fuel future growth with, uh, with the synergies that we uncover. Uh, with respect to your question on positions eliminated, at this stage we don't see any positions eliminated. In fact, uh, uh, since we've got into COVID-19, uh, we had a halt on any new free, uh, any new hirings in any one of our platforms. We wanted to guarantee uh, uh, that there would be no layoffs and uh, all of our employees were paid, but we were not filling any positions. Right now we have at various levels uh, close to... Uh, uh, three to four hundred positions that are open. So uh, our, our hope is that we can redeploy the personnel there. Uh, but the real value is going to find some of those uh, synergies and bring the units together, servicing our clientele in the market. That, that's that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, the second question that I had on on the U.S. segment really comes down to this: in, in light of all the challenges that you were facing in terms of your mix and what was going on in the market, your financial performance was, was nothing short of heroic. So wondering, essentially, how'd you do it? I mean, what changes did you make? What did you focus on? How did you manage to, how'd you do it? Uh, I really Other than superb that. management, of course, but, you know, more, more granularly. <laughs> Uh, as you recall, uh, Irene, uh, in the past quarters, uh, we had some uh, incremental uh, spending uh, with regards to warehousing, delivery, and logistics. And uh, we, uh, we, we said at one time that, you know, we have to go to market and try to recoup some of those costs. And those costs, when you try to recoup those, don't, don't come back, you know, to price initiative uh, immediately or uh, the next quarter. It takes some time. So during the quarter, we definitely benefited from uh, pricing action uh, to mitigate the uh, incremental cost of warehousing and logistics. Uh, obviously, from um, <clears throat> the volume uh, affected us um, in the U.S. Um, 
our efficiencies overall are definitely not the same level as past quarter, uh, but to, uh, to the extent we could, um, reducing our spending, whether it's on the SGNA front um, and all other the uh, elements of the of the spend, um, helped to drive some uh, some positive. That's on top of the uh, the market factor that would uh, that were all directed positively. Uh, for us for, during the quarter. That's great, thank you. And then um, you'd be very disappointed, we know, if I didn't ask about all of this. Can you or this? Can you just uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about your current thinking around M and A, what you're seeing in the marketplace and the different geographies, and and where you might be seeing the, the most interesting opportunities? Yeah, so we definitely do have a focus on acquisitions. Uh, we've got a pipeline that is uh, actually quite full. I would say that legitimate files, we would probably be upwards five, six, seven legitimate files, although there is a lot of uh, uh, underperforming assets or what I would deem as junk on the market that we certainly don't want to be part of the processes. And we've signaled to the sellers that uh, we are not going to be part of uh, those kinds of processes. And we have signaled to uh, the sellers uh, of, of high-valued uh, uh, assets that we do want to be part of a process. Uh, so I will tell you that uh, uh, given our uh, financial flexibility, our deleveraging initiatives, uh, the, the talent that we have that is eager to do more, uh, we're definitely looking at, uh, at acquisitions. We're active in files uh, despite the fact that there is COVID. We still have the opportunity to perform due diligence. Uh, that would be through the virtual rooms as well as uh, we have deployed some of our teams uh, into different facilities to perform a physical inspection of some assets. So that is still ongoing. However, uh, you know, it's not the, the same teams that's uh, uh, being deployed uh, because of travel restrictions, but uh, uh, it's given an opportunity to some of our talent to uh, perhaps do things that they won't normally do. Uh, so so the, the, the wheel continues to turn on acquisitions. I'm optimistic uh, that uh, we will materialize uh, one or perhaps multiple acquisitions over the course of this next fiscal year. Uh, but again, we do that with a lot of prudence. Uh, we do that with a lot of discipline. And uh, just like, you know, we can walk away from some business that is not profitable, we're happy to walk away from some acquisitions uh, where we think that uh, either the conditions aren't right or the price is not in our uh, sweet spot. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm still quite optimistic that uh, despite COVID and, and some of the limitations there, that we can get something done over the course of this fiscal year. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll get to our next question on the line. It's from the line of Michael Van Elst. TD Securities, go right ahead. Uh, thanks, and I just want to follow up a little bit. I think on some of Irene's questions, but your your last outlook um, painted a pretty tough picture for the near-term financials, given all the changes in the channel and uh, channels and the challenges in adjusting production levels. So, were you able to do anything differently than you, that you didn't think you were going to be able to do heading into Q1? And do you still expect earnings to be lower year over year in fiscal 21? So, uh, Michael, if you recall, uh, the last uh, call we had, there was a, a lot of uncertainty 
and a, a lot of um, volatility in the markets. Uh, and so it was. It's very difficult. Even now, it's very difficult to predict what the future is going to look like. Uh, however, I would say that uh, based on the experience we had uh, coming in through uh, uh, March, April, May, June, uh, we feel like we're in a good position to be able to navigate well, uh, or perhaps better, moving forward than we did uh, getting into it. Uh, we, we, you know, as, as Max alluded to. Uh, there are certain things that we uh, tried to do to mitigate some of the inefficiencies in terms of overall volume. You know, spend deferrals. That was something that our teams focused on. Uh, trade promotion, travel spends, uh, cost containments, uh, changing shifts uh, within our facilities, uh, adding machinery where we needed to add machinery to be able to deliver uh, the volumes that, uh, that were being called for. Uh, these are all things that now we have under our belt uh, we feel uh, quite comfortable that our team has responded well and that they can respond well moving forward. Uh, but that uncertainty and that volatility still exists. Uh, if there's going to be a second wave, how that's going to impact us, we don't know, depending on how severe the governments are going to be at shutting down economies. Uh, so there still is a lot of uncertainty, but I feel very, very good about the spot that we're in. Uh, I feel good that we've got the right foundations our balance sheet is clean. Uh, our employees are engaged. Uh, even in the hot spots where we, you know, uh, some communities had some massive outbreaks, uh, you know, where we had to close down some plans for a week or two, send people out for testing. As soon as our, our, our employees got their tests back that were negative, they were ready to come back to work. Uh, and so uh, the energy really is amazing, and perhaps that might be why our outlook is a little bit more um, uh, positive than it may have been going into the uh, COVID-19. So that's a general tone that I'm saying we have in the organization. I'm going to ask Max to speak to a bit more specifically in terms of uh, maybe some financials and numbers that he's thinking. Well, just uh, Mike, in terms of the sector per se, uh, the items that we called out, whether it's in Canada uh, relative to the additional fluid milk volume helping to lift our results, uh, this is there to stay. We don't see this, uh, you know, uh, going going back. Uh, same thing with regards to the milk uh, availability in Australia. Uh, so we, we feel that this milk that we've been able to attract is going to be sustainable. And from a Europe perspective, um, yeah, definitely that no signs to, uh, you know, to tell us uh, that uh, the performance would start to decline whatsoever. So it leaves us with the U.S., uh, and when we talked the last time, the, and you recall the early on in, in April or so, uh, probably the 23 million market f uh, factor favorable for the quarter was looking more into maybe a negative 23 million. Uh, so there's a, a, a continuous improvement in the market condition uh, that allowed us, you know, to, to uh, end up the quarter positively. And that, that would be the wild card for us to say, are we going to be, uh, whether better than last year, lower than last year, and so on and so forth. Uh, at this time, for this Q1, uh, all the way up to June, uh, we were unsure that these market conditions uh, would be favorable to us. There was unprecedented uh, uh, volatility, so we're still calling it uh, in the U.S. to be uh, volatile. Um, and, uh, and as you, you, you saw the, uh, the block the last uh, few days, uh, significant the decline. Uh, so we'll see how this all uh, turns out. 
uh, over this uh, this particular quarter. So hopefully that's helpful for you. And I would add, Max, yeah, that's the domestic market, but it's also, if you look at the international markets, the GDT this week has dropped significantly for some of the uh, commodity products. So volatility is going to be a continued theme for, for this quarter. Okay, that, that's all very helpful. And I was just, I was also trying to understand in those market factor comments for the U.S., I think in your press release, you, you, you pointed out um, that the ingredient price increase had a positive effect, but the cheese price fluctuations had a negative impact on realization of inventories. Why, why was that the case when we saw a big, big run up uh, for the most part of the quarter? I know it went down initially, but the cheese price ran up for most of the quarter and hit record highs. The, the, the inventory realization for the quarter uh, was positive, so was the spread uh, for the quarter. So, uh, you know, the, the, the combined of the, all those elements uh, were, was favorable. Uh, at early on in the quarter, it was negative. Uh, at some point, we reached a point of, you know, uh, a midpoint or a, a point mall, and then uh, ended up being positive. So, um, as we're looking into this quarter coming uh, to us, uh, with block uh, going down, so the realization of our inventory will be uh, will be stressed. Um, and um, although we had a, a very good start in Q2, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. So, okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Yep. And just just finally, uh, on the competitive activity, you pointed it out uh, in the past several times in both Canada. Uh, for milk and uh, the U.S. for mozzarella, it seems like milk is not so much an issue as, as anymore in in Canada. But what, what's the status of the the competitive environment in in the U.S.? Uh, so right now it's pretty well balanced. Uh, we don't see any uh, irresponsible behavior on the market, uh, and, and that that is a very good thing. Uh, there is, however, an oversupply of, of mozzarella in, in the U.S., and that still does exist, and that's putting uh, pressure on prices, not because, you know, our, our competitors are, are, are getting uh, irrational, but because there's an oversupply uh, and people are trying to lock in uh, some, uh, some uh, business uh, at favorable rates, which is uh, uh, common when you have a, an oversupply situation. But I would say uh, for the... For the, 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 the uh, for the large part, uh, I would say that there's peace in the valley right now. Uh, we're hoping that that will be uh, sustained for uh, some time to come. All right. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Michael. And we'll get to our next question on the line. It's from the line of Mark Petrie with CBC. Go right ahead. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you. Um, sorry, just to follow up again, could you just be a bit more specific with regards to the dairy ingredients um, that were favorable for you uh, in the U.S.? Because, like, I know the, the whey price was, was pretty stable, all things considered. So just wondering if you can be a bit more specific. Was it some of the higher-grade whey that you guys, you know, do good volume in? Well, yeah, that definitely refers to uh, high-protein uh, powders, uh, namely WPC-80 uh, product. However, we're seeing uh, okay. moving, as we're moving into the next quarters, there is pressure on the higher proteins, but we are seeing favorable, uh, a more favorable outlook when it comes to the lower protein commodities. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, 
just and and then coming back to Canada as well with regards to the comments around volume and uh, and then and then you know fluid milk being the key driver there separating some of that fluid milk volume that that came back to you with with uh, return of contracts and then also the spike in retail demand can you talk about the volume performance um, in Canada separating that fluid milk um, component out. Yeah, so I'll just give you general shifts of what we saw, and then Kai will fill in the blanks with some more specificity. Uh, but uh, retail volume was uh, actually quite strong. Uh, there was a, a boost of about 20% in overall uh, volume at the retail level. Uh, and, that, and I'm talking uh, besides the fluid milk, we're looking at the cheese categories and cheese products. Uh, so that was uh, uh, very favorable for us. Uh, we saw a drop in the food service early on in the pandemic, drop in food service uh, and industrial business by a rate of maybe uh, 30 or 40 percent, and then since came back probably 10 or 15 percent uh, uh, to uh, 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 below its normal levels. Um, so that's what we saw in the Canadian platform. Kai, you want to give a bit more color there? Sure. Uh, what we're seeing on the horizon from a food service perspective is continued recovery on the food service side. Retail is kind of stabilizing, so uh, looking at flat relative to last year. Uh, we are uh, running full out and uh, seeing very strong demand, especially on the moths and cheddar sides. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's very helpful. Can you give sort of a similar commentary for the U.S.? Is that possible? Yeah, so in terms of overall uh, uh, channel sales, uh, we've seen very much uh, the same kinds of patterns, so decline uh, in food service and ingredient, uh, rise in retail. However, uh, I will say this, that our, our retail business is not as robust or in terms of percentage uh, impact in the U.S. as it is in Canada. Uh, and so what we found ourselves in, uh, in some areas with a capacity surplus in, in most of our plants and capacity limitations in other plants, so in a sense, we had some plants were really busy and other plants were idle. Uh, and that was the nature of the makeup of our U.S. Uh, uh, platform. Uh, business started to take off uh, when we saw the opening up of the economies. And then maybe uh, Kai can give you a little bit of a perspective on the outlook there. Sure. So food service-wise for the U.S., we're looking at sort of 70 to 80 percent of normal levels. Retail is leveling off. And uh, just to add on the food service uh, component, we're seeing some weakening in national accounts in the QSR segment. Uh, again, those that uh, are well set up for uh, takeout uh, delivery are performing well, and those that aren't adapting to the new normal are obviously not doing so well. You've, you know, Chapter 11, uh, California Pizza Kitchen, there's a lot of examples of casual diners that have gone out of business. Uh, and then on the industrial side, it's a bit of a mixed bag for us in uh, in uh, SCUSA, our industrial volumes go to uh, retail processors, and that's faring quite well because of the pickup in retail. But on the flip side for SDF, a lot of our industrial volumes go to more of food service type items, like the coffee creamers as an example, and that's, uh, that's uh, been down quite a bit over last year. Okay, thanks. And then I guess on that sort of topic, I mean, you guys have um – you know, invested, put a lot of effort and put, invested a fair bit of capital in terms of adding brands um, into your business, um, you know, across across a number of geographies. Could you just sort of run down, you know, the extent to which, um, you know, those brands are kind of, you know, number one or number two in their respective categories and then, you know, or, or 
or you know, and then the component of, of, of your brand portfolio where, you know, maybe they're more like number three or number four. Yeah, Kai? Sure. I'll, I'll go around the horn. Uh, so we'll start with the UK because that's an easy one. Uh, market-leading retail cheddar brand, Cathedral City, performing phenomenally well. In fact, uh, we're ahead of plans uh, in terms of our expansion aspirations in that part of the world, uh, so doing very well. I would also call out Frylight. It's a smaller part of the business, but we never talk about it, and that's uh, doing extremely well. It's the market-leading uh, frying oil spray uh, for the retail segment. If we move over to uh, Argentina, we have a variety of brands. Uh, La Paulina is our predominant brand and is a market leader in a variety of cheese categories. And in Australia, our Coon brand, which will be renamed uh, next year, is uh, the market leading brand from an everyday cheese perspective. And we have solid brands in uh, the, uh, the other stages. We do have market leading positions in our specialty cheese uh, business with, that we recently acquired from Lion. And uh, if we move over to uh, Canada, we have a lot of uh, market leading brands uh, at retail as well as food service, uh, mozzarella, a lot of the Italian specialty products. If you look at our fluid milk brands, uh, Dairyland is number one out west. Nielsen is number one in Ontario. Neutral Aid, uh, not so strong. Probably number three, number four player. Armstrong is moving up the ranks to performing very well, especially in light of the fact of the uh, recent uh, uh, new product launches. Uh, so that's kind of at a high level, uh, sort of uh, our uh, market uh, position uh, around the geographies. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll pass on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as a brief reminder, again, to register any questions or follow-ups, it is the one four by the four on your telephone. We'll get to our next question on the line from Chris Lee from Desjardins. Go right ahead. Well, hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, you know, I just wanted maybe first to get your thoughts on Canada's decision to allocate a lot of the uh, dairy import licenses to, to, the, to the dairy processors. I know that's something that the industry has been advocating for, and, and now you guys have it. I um, just want to get your thoughts on that and maybe the impact on Saputo um, going yeah. forward. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. So uh, the uh, free trade agreements, the last two free trade agreements had been favorable for the dairy industry uh, with respect to uh, the allocation of those import licenses. Uh, so if you think about the, uh, uh, the CPTPP and the uh, USMCA, 85% of the allocation have gone to uh, dairy industry players stakeholders of the industry and uh, you know so I had gone to Ottawa a number of times to petition and lobby for uh, on behalf of the dairy industry as well as uh, on behalf of Saputo uh, that this is the best thing uh, uh, to maintain value in the space. Uh, our objective uh, as an industry, our objective as an organization is to import value added products uh, and not to bring in commodity products that are going to uh, take value out of the space and out of the category. Uh, and, and now it's up to us to live up to the commitments that we made to governments of using 100% of those licenses that were allocated. Uh, so I feel very good about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the resolution of uh, these trade agreements and how uh, dairy stakeholders uh, can now control their own destiny. So I feel very, very good about, uh, about where we are. That's great. And I, I guess, am I correct, that's one of the reasons you started importing the cathedral uh, from, from the UK into Canada? That's absolutely correct. So we, we uh, uh, have the ability 
uh, through licenses to bring value category products into uh, this country that are going to be selling for uh, higher than what the domestic product is. Uh, and, and so, again, this is one of the commitments we made to government, and uh, uh, shortly thereafter we've uh, uh, lived up to that commitment. So Cathedral City, uh, highly valued brand, now is in this country for consumers to consume, of course at a higher price than domestic product. And, and do you see that as a, a big opportunity going forward to, to grow that brand in Canada? Or is maybe some numbers would be helpful? Well, maybe not that brand specifically because I think there is sort of uh, elasticity in terms of uh, overall uh, consumption uh, of, of uh, value-add cheddar. Uh, but perhaps we could do the same thing uh, with other products uh, that we're manufacturing. I'll give you another example. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Treasure Cave uh, blue cheese in the U.S. Now with the USMCA, why not bring that blue cheese, high-valued product, into Canada and broaden our portfolio of products that we can bring to market. So there are other examples, so we don't always have to go to the same well to get the water. There's a bunch of different wells that we can use uh, to, to get uh, a wider range of uh, value-added products into Canada and on, on store shelves. Okay, that's very helpful. And maybe just one question, on, one more on Canada. As you know, I mean, it's been reported that Walmart is looking to increase the supplier's fees to help cover some of their store uh, renovations and online um, initiatives. From a Saputo perspective, is that going to be a meaningful headwind to you guys, or do you have initiatives to, to offset some of those cost increases? Well, uh, you have to understand that we're also incurring additional costs in relation to dealing with this uh, COVID crisis, whether it's protecting our employees, whether it's uh, additional labor. Uh, so we will be, uh, you know, in discussions with our retailer partners in terms of what is the right thing moving forward. So okay. more to come, more to come on that front. Front, uh, I don't think the the story has ended right there. Yeah, no, for sure not. Um, and maybe in the U.S., um, you mentioned food services at about. 70 to 80 percent of normal sales. I just want to just to confirm: was that during the quarter, or was it exiting exiting the quarter? That is currently in the month that we're in. Uh, when we okay. were entering the COVID crisis, we were looking at 50 percent, and that's recovered to, depending on the geography, between 70 and 80 percent. And have you seen that improvement kind of stall recently as some of the states start to shut down again? There could be an actual retraction, but what we're seeing is it's stabilized to that 70 to 80 percent of normal levels. But if there is a wider shutdown, specifically in the United States, we would expect to see contractions in those food service numbers. Okay. And, and sorry, you mentioned earlier in the U.S., your retail channel is, is starting to kind of stabilize a little bit or less in growth than Canada. What is the difference about the U.S. versus Canada that, that causes that difference in the retail channel. Yeah, uh, my, my reference there, Chris, was uh, is that uh, the, the portion of our retail business in the U.S. relative to the total business is smaller uh, than that of, the, uh, of, of Canada. Uh, so even though retail is growing in the U.S., uh, we don't have uh, the same lift in percentage as we might have found in Canada. So I, I apologize if there was some confusion there. Oh, no, no, thanks for the clarification. And just a couple of more quick ones. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, with the merger of the two U.S. divisions, is, is there going to be an opportunity to have perhaps repurpose some of the food service facilities to maybe retail 
you know, as the demand continues to shift to retail longer term? Uh, we are not going to um, move away from our food service customers or industrial customers. Uh, if there are opportunities on the retail side, definitely we'll look at CapEx allocation to increase capacity there, but it will not be at the expense of food service or industrial. We believe that those markets are going to come back uh, to levels that they were once were. Uh, it's just a matter of time, and uh, we'll be patient that way. Perfect. And my last question, just on M&A, you mentioned you have six or seven legitimate files you're looking at. Can you give us a sense of the size from like the range, how small to how big, and maybe what geographies or, or, or product areas? Yeah, so there, there are a number of different, and you could appreciate this through COVID-19, uh, uh, perhaps some companies are in uh, a more difficult situation than others. Some have had uh, some strategic orientation changes uh, away from uh, uh, either uh, cheese or dairy. Um, and, and so um, typically when there are files available, we're one of the first companies to, to be approached. Uh, and so th those files would range anywhere from uh, $200 million in sales to uh, $2 billion in sales. Uh, the, the, the range is, it really is that wide. Gotcha. Thanks so much for your answers and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you very much, Chris. That's very nice of you. Thank you very much. We'll get to our next question on the line. It's from Vishal Sridhar from National Bank Financial. Go right ahead. Hi, this is uh, Ryan Lee uh, in for Vishal. Thank you for taking my uh, questions. Um, maybe just want to start off um, with regards to the direct-to-consumer website that was uh, online. Um, what, how did this come about, and, and what are the plans for this business going forward? Is, there, is it more of a short-term play, or, or is there any uh, longer-term uh, strategic implications here? Yeah, well, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. You know, the e-commerce play is something that we had been contemplating uh, for quite some time. Uh, and, and you, know, uh, I, I, you know, I've said this to our team here. COVID is giving us a license uh, to change. Uh, to consider things that we never would have considered before. Uh, and so with this license, we need to take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to us. Uh, you know, going back in time, there was a home service uh, business that we inherited through the Dairyland acquisition where we were going door to door to consumers' houses selling them milk. Well, this is, you know, still selling to consumers direct, but through a different platform. Uh, we had a problem of uh, uh, too much inventory in some cases in some categories of product, and uh, 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 those those products were being uh, requested by consumers. And so we put the two things together and developed the Saputo Fridge, which is an e-commerce business where uh, consumers can buy uh, product that is close to the end of shelf life, but at discounted prices and delivered directly to home. It's something that we toyed with one uh, to understand the consumer behavior, but two also. Uh, to perfect our e-commerce type business that we could either do direct to consumers or perhaps leverage with some of the retailers uh, that were going uh, down that way. Uh, it, it, it uh, to me, was a, was a great experience, despite the fact that, uh, you know, some journalists couldn't understand our strategy. I can get that. Journalists are not typically entrepreneurs. Uh, we are entrepreneurs. Uh, and so uh, we found that this has been a great little niche that we can tap into and we're going to be expanding that e-commerce business. I'd like Kai to speak to a little bit uh, 
you know, some of the other initiatives that we have ongoing that are creating quite a bit of energy within the organization uh, in terms of just thinking outside the box. You know, at Saputo, we're committed to a robust e-commerce strategy. It's not going away uh, through the insights work that our teams have done. Uh, consumers are going to be uh, increasing their e-commerce, their uh, online purchasing of, of grocery items. And when we look at some of the opportunities for Saputo moving forward, we've got to look at ways to develop uh, solutions to make home meals more convenient, more interesting. So as an example, with our uh, Le Frigo, uh, we uh, launched uh, pizza kits. So it's an opportunity for people to, uh, because we already supply all the main ingredients to uh, pizza operators, we thought we would provide the uh, the home meal solution for, for our consumers. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way of trying out new innovative ideas uh, in a platform that we know is going to be uh, is going to continue to grow and, and be important for us. But uh, you know, I, I, I'll be very honest with you, uh, uh, Ryan. Uh, if we stand still, we're not going to progress. And so we've got to try different things. And some things are going to stick, and other things won't. But uh, you know, that's uh, uh, that's that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. And I, I'm I'm so delighted and I'm so excited about the ideas that our teams are coming up with, and we're providing them that latitude to really uh, uh, spread their wings and, and try out different things. Thank you. That sounds like a very interesting opportunity. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for the color in that. Um, and then my last question, it's a two-parter. Um, you mentioned during the quarter that uh, there were some, obviously promotion activity was limited, which kind of mitigated some of the, the pressures. Um, how is that shaped out now that we're into July into Q2? And then the second part is somewhat related. Um, there's been media reports that some Canadian uh, grocery retailers are, are looking to reduce costs uh, and looking to suppliers to do that. And and can you comment on that? Sorry, can you repeat the second Start, start with the first half and then you'll get to the second half. Sure. So in terms of, uh, you know, we talked about uh, retail volumes sort of normalizing. And uh, as these volumes get back down to earth, we are looking to reintroduce uh, some of our trade spend to, uh, uh, to uh, introduce promotions and get back to the levels where we were. So we will have to, to push that as we move into the next couple of quarters. The second question, I sorry, I didn't, I didn't quite catch what you were asking. So Ryan, if you could just repeat the second question, okay. please. Yep. Yeah. The second question um, relates to there's there's been some media reports about um, some Canadian grocery retailers uh, looking to reduce some of their costs and 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 they're looking at suppliers to do that in terms of uh, increasing some of the fees, um, e-commerce fees. Um, has that has that impacted you guys? Has has there, there been any of that kind of action um, in some of your markets? Well, uh, I I talked to that point earlier in that uh, you know in this COVID crisis we have incurred. <clears throat> additional costs in terms of uh, servicing our customers and achieving the fill rates that we have. So we will be uh, having these strategic discussions with our retailers to find, uh, to find a suitable and fair outcome. And if I can add on that, uh, Ryan, when we talk about you know, competitive market environment, well, that pressure uh, fits right into it. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our next question on the line is from another follow-up question on the line of Mark Petrie from CIBC. Go right ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I wanted to ask, you know, one of the themes that's sort of been consistently covered through the most difficult parts of the pandemic, you know, and, and, and with the strain on supply chains 
you know, many food food manufacturers narrowed production on to, to, to focus on their higher volume SKUs. I'm, I'm just wondering if that's something that you did um, and, you know, sort of coming out of the, the most volatile or challenging part of the pandemic, does it, um, does it affect how you think about your portfolio or present certain opportunities or challenges over the course of the next, uh, you know, six to 18 months? Absolutely. Again, uh, through our insights work, uh, there's a, you know, we've got some highly capable groups that are working together. We found that on the food service side, especially more is less. So it's, it's about, uh, making every skew work harder and, and finding equilibrium between assortment profitability uh, and efficiency. So we are revisiting that. We can't offer, you know, all the hundreds of SKUs that we have in the past. We have to streamline our operations, especially in our food service dedicated facilities that are not running at the same level as they were in the past. So we're going to have to become more efficient, and that means less SKUs. And uh, w- w- what we found, too, uh, early on in the uh, pandemic is that uh, a lot of the retailers and, and also food service uh, distributors were very accommodating to uh, the types of runs that we can have in our plants, and uh, uh, they, they were working with us to minimize the number of SKUs so we can get the maximum amount of volume out. Uh, so that, uh, we have had a very good collaborative, pro- uh, collaborative approach uh, with our customers and a good, healthy discussion, and uh, I suspect that that will continue. And did you experience that in the retail channel as well, or was it more mostly prevalent in food service? No, we uh, was also in the retail channel, uh, and, and and I think uh, everyone uh, put on their solution-oriented hats uh, to try to see how we can best service uh, consumers first and foremost. That was everybody's priority. Okay. Thanks a lot. Best of luck. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. And Mrs. Puto, there are no further questions at this time. I'll turn it back to you. Thank you very much, Tommy. We thank you for taking part in this conference call. We hope you'll join us for the presentation of our fiscal 2021 second quarter results on November 5th. Stay safe. Thank you very much. And that does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation as we disconnect your lines. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.